Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. When I talk about Week in Review, I'm talking about an hour that we get here at the end of the work week where we get to investigate what happened this week and what it means. And when you undertake an endeavor like that, what you want to do is you want to invite local journalists from around our region. This is their job to investigate what happened and what it means. And we've got Crosscut reporter David Croman back with us. David, good to see you. Thanks for coming. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. David, don't you live near Tornado Alley? Uh, how was yeah, your week? I, I apparently live near Tornado Alley. Uh, it was okay. I was in Seattle, and so I wasn't checking my phone, but I could feel it buzzing in my pocket. And then when I checked, I uh, had all these text messages and notifications from people in Kitsap County, where I live, uh, telling me that there had been a tornado warning, which uh, is not not a great thing. You always have these nightmares of doing long interviews and coming out to emergencies. And so it was, it's kind of scary. It turned out to not be uh, a big deal, but I grew up he heard of a tornado warning happening. Yeah, I don't think there were actual tornadoes, even though there was a warning. David, you, you are, you're a little bit breaking up, just enough that you might want to experiment with, um, I don't know, cutting your video uh, to save a little bandwidth. I don't even know if that's true. Isabella Breda is Everett Daily Herald. Did I just make that up? Does does cutting your Zoom video actually do anything at all? Do you have any idea? You know, I don't know, but I always go for it. Yes. So hopefully. Uh, So you're in Everett. uh, And Isabella, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Um, Yeah, thanks for having me. Any tornadoes in, uh, in, in Everett this week? You know, no. I had friends in Seattle who uh, said they got the warning out there as well. Um, my mom lives over in Mason County and got it too, but she wasn't even near where it was supposed to touch down. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Well, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we've also got from Washington State Wire, the CEO there and the publisher, DJ Wilson. DJ, tornadoes, power poles down, trees down, hail, um, uh, floods. What What happened to you this week? You know, we, we had folks on our staff that got uh, got the text message and the warning. Um, but I will say, like, it's just a crazy weather time. And I'm not sure. I sort of remember these sort of halcyon days of Seattle 20 years ago where you had, you know, you could expect a pretty good summer, maybe till Halloween. Uh, and that's because, you know, summer didn't get started till July 4th. And now it feels like we're kind of muddling through this weather torment and you know today it's tornadoes tomorrow i mean we're, we get down trees and power cut out every other week it feels like so it's just a little rough these days in terms of the weather front it's rough and flooding might be a might be a thing we've got a lot of rainfall a lot of uh, a lot of snow melt because the rain is a little bit warm and so you know you've got the the what tolt and snoqualmie uh, possibly flooding so we hope everybody's going to stay okay i did see I think maybe the brightest rainbow I have I have seen was outside my window earlier this week. I know we cannot blame any one rainbow on climate change. It doesn't work that way. But uh, maybe bright rainbows are more likely in the future. I have no idea. Um, okay, so let's let's get at the news uh, and and what happened this week. Let's begin with schools closing. I went to a friend's house uh, yesterday. And uh, in, informed him that his child did not have school today, which he was not aware of in the Seattle Public Schools. This is happening in Bellevue and Kent as well. Hundreds of teachers took the day after Veterans Day as a day off. And as KOW's Ann Dornfeld told us, there were not enough substitute teachers. 
Seattle Schools Human Resources Chief Noel Treat said the district is not contractually able to turn down most personal leave requests. So when more than 600 staff members asked for the day off, the district was forced to cancel classes and make them up at the end of the year. Because teachers have vacations built into the school year, personal days are usually supposed to be used for business or family needs. But some workers ask for time off to care for children in preschool or private schools that are closed Friday. Others say they needed a break from the stress of teaching during COVID. So the COVID stress and the teacher shortage, substitute shortage, there's all kind. this mess is happening all over the country, but not all school districts shut down. Uh, Isabella, did, uh, did school districts in Snohomish County shut down? Yeah, I was talking with a school board member over in Marysville, and she was telling me that the superintendent's actually been stepping in as a substitute teacher. So they've mm. been preventing these shutdowns. They're having administrative staff step in there, but definitely a different time. Yeah, for sure. Anybody else have insight into what, you know, you, you could you could imagine that the school districts, it's a very easy to say, you know, who, who should have done what, but in a sense, it's it, it's foreseeable given all the stress and the shortage that I mentioned. And the fact that Veterans Day is on a Thursday and we've got the Friday just sitting there, it, it's not shocking that a lot of people would want the personal day off. But any other any other insight into what happened this week? I would just say I think there's uh, going to be um, a couple of long-term things from this. One, we have workforce shortages all across the economy, mm-hmm. not just in the public sector. And there is chronic and consistent just stress. And the more that we think about the reality of COVID being endemic, not going away, we're going to be muddling through these kind of fits and starts for a long time. Years is really what we should be thinking about. The other thing I'd say is like, there's no better way to hack off parents than by springing a school closure on them, uh, particularly when you don't get a snow day out of it. Like if you could send the kids outside in their, in their snowsuits to hit the hill, that's one thing. But mm-hmm. if you're just like, boy, you guys got to you know, you got to work from home or you got to cancel your plans because uh, little Timmy is going to be hanging out with you, want to be on the iPad all day. That uh, is not a fabulous way to build stakeholder support. You can float uh, boats on the pool that's collecting around the storm drain at best. At best. <laughs> David, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of the worker shortages, especially in the, the public sector it's an issue that predates COVID, you know, I mean, I think this is sort of this building wave. I'd read somewhere that like since 2010, um, you know, the demand for teachers has outstripped supply by like, quad has like quadrupled the sort of gap between the two. And so I think like we're seeing in, you know, with the ferries or other public sectors, it was this issue that was happening and going to happen and then COVID happened uh, and saw people burn out or retire early. And so it sort of took this thing that was has been bubbling for a long time and just accelerated it probably by a few years and then made it happen kind of all at once. Um, one of the more interesting things I remember I read once uh, around all these retirements we're seeing is the stock market has uh, sort of amazingly continued to do really well, mm-hmm. even through all this pandemic. And so people's people's 401ks and people's retirement portfolios actually look okay right now. And so they look at it and they say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm tired, I'm stressed, I'm worried for my health um, and I can make it work financially. So I'm going to retire. And um, so, you know, I think it's a, this is not a, this is not a quick fix issue. Stock tip yeah. that those are only those are that's only wealth when someone sells all that stuff. 
So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the sort of false, uh, the false security of the wealth effect is uh, probably riling a lot of us in Seattle. Is I, my wife was just out in Michigan this week uh, for work, and she noted that the median home price in Lansing is like $175,000. And in Seattle, it's like eight fifty. dollars Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of people who probably feel this wealth effect, uh, just based on the fact that, you know, their, their homes are going up through the roof, the home valuation because of our single family zoning. I think this is, we're totally, I'm totally off the topic for for just one second, but, uh, the, the sort of interest in having a reduction in single family zoning in the Seattle area has a lot of proponents, but one of the downsides of that is single family zoning, uh, zoning, um, drives up value property properties so much that people can generate wealth and retire at the spry age of 65 mm. uh, in Seattle where they can't land it. Well, on the subject of the schools, time, yes, David. I was going to say at the same time, um, you know, you look at King County and living in Seattle on a teacher's salary is really hard. So um, when we're talking about rising home prices and just the cost of living right now, uh, you know, like a lot of industries, it's like you, to, to be a teacher in Seattle, you um, either have to have a, you know, wealthy spouse, a, you know, inheritance, or you're commuting really long distances. And so that, I think, is also kind of exacerbating this issue. Mm-hmm. I got a note, uh, an email from a teacher. Someone says she's a Seattle public school teacher who's, who says she's frustrated. She was going to go to work uh, today because that's her job. And she said she understands educators are fatigued. They're always asked to do a lot more than teaching, especially now they've got to follow all the COVID safety uh, protocols and there are not enough substitutes. And teachers always get saddled with the role of social worker. But, says, says Shira, we are professionals and the inconvenience to families of school being canceled with a couple days notice is not insignificant. It's also extremely bad optics for educators, says Shira. People like to find reasons to blame teachers for things. And here's another one. Despite the fact that we all know we're working hard daily and nightly and weekendly, of course, no one decided to take the day off thinking that the entire district would have to close schools for the day. But for those who wanted the extra day as a rest day or a mental health day, I wish they would have chosen a day that is not so obvious. We do need personal days like people in every other profession. But I just have to say it's frustrating for someone to plan to take the day off despite not having procured a sub when they know that there are not enough subs to cover. And she wanted me to know I'm not throwing my fellow teachers under the bus. It's just, you know, people are a lot of us are fatigued and kind of stressed and and, a little um, hair trigger these days. Go to the Seattle Times comment page on this story, by the way. Only go to the Seattle Times comment page if you don't like yourself because it is a pit that you don't want to spend time in. <laughs> I wonder, though, if, you know, you could, if if there was, because this is going to happen again, you know, I wonder if there's some way of anticipating this and, you know, taking holiday pay that, that you know, because a lot of people who worked on Thursday would get holiday pay. Maybe you could move that to Friday and create some incentives for teachers to actually stick around because, you know, I totally get it. If you have Thursday off, of course, you're going to want to take Friday off and just take advantage of the full weekend. It makes sense. So, um, you know, if this happens again, they would maybe it makes sense that the administrators say, hmm, this could be a problem. How can we incentivize people to, to not do this? There are two, I think, interesting state policy uh, topics that are kind of baked into this conversation. One is for so long, not, not recently necessarily, but in recent decades, we underpaid teachers so much 
that the, the items that the union could bargain for were things like personal days. They weren't able to bargain for, you know, uh, salary increases that might keep pace with the cost of a house in Seattle, for instance. That's changed a little bit in the recent uh, last few years with some uh, legislative action. But for the most part, these are things that have been baked into uh, teaching because of the bargaining table experience. Um, so, uh, and I had something else that I thought uh, I was going to say, but can't remember it. So I'll leave it there. Okay. Well, then there's the, why not just have Veterans Day on a Friday or a Monday? And Which uh, jogs my jogs my memory, which is ah. uh, the, se the second thing we should, uh, or that is, uh, comes out of this is loosening standards for substitutes so that we can get more substitutes in, more teachers in. Washington State has a relatively high threshold to become a K-12 teacher uh, with a post-secondary credential uh, required in most cases. And so loosening of that to be able to bring in more substitutes would probably help situations like this. And as Isabella told us, uh, you could you could just be a principal or a superintendent and be a substitute for a day if, uh, if you're called into duty, I guess. Yeah. If you're a secretary in an office, you know, some of them might be pursuing credentials to be able to step in and help right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. The answer, by the way, as to why not just have Veterans Day Monday is that Veterans Day started as Armistice Day to mark the end of World War One, and it happened on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. So, um, so I guess for all those people who remember fondly celebrating Armistice Day in 1918, it's sort of hard to give up the 11-11 thing, but it might happen. It might have to happen. I did check the calendar. This is not going to be a problem again until 2025. That's when Veterans Day falls on a Tuesday. So we've got from now to then to plan. Uh, all right. Um, since we're talking about schools, I wanted to check in with you, Isabella, again, at the uh, the Everett Daily Herald there. there. I see that in Marysville, not far from you, they're getting rid of Native American school mascots. What's going on there? Yeah, so the district has been working closely with the Tulalip tribes, which uh, just to clarify, because not a lot of people know, but they're the successors to a, a handful of tribes in the region. Um but they've been working with them to change the Marysville Pilchuck High School mascot and then the Totem Middle School mascot. Uh, one, the high schools is the Tomahawks, and then they've got the Thunderbirds at the middle school. Something interesting there is this is a direct collaboration with the tribes, so it's ultimately up to them. Um, the law that passed that initiated this basically said that it's up to the tribes. So though there's like 30 districts, I think, statewide, that could change their mascots that use Native American symbols. It's ultimately up to the tribes that it's impacting. Um, and Marysville is also unique because their district includes the sovereign nation. So the Tulalip tribes land there. Um, and one of the residents there actually participated in a project to change a mascot at his high school in 1989. So some people have really deep feelings about whether or not things should change. And so they're actually keeping Totem Middle School, which, you know, Totem is a Native American symbol, but they're changing the mascot of the Thunderbirds. Um, so yeah, it's a really collaborative effort. There's a lot of back and forth. If you just open up, we don't have a comment section, but uh, our Facebook comments, um, you'll see neighbors and tribal members going back and forth about whether or not it's good or bad to be changing the mascots, but there's actually a tribal member who did her uh, doctorate research on this topic and found that 
you know, these mascots can have a negative impact on the Native American community and it can also perpetuate those stereotypes. There's a lot of use behind changing them. Have you seen the, the community, the district, the tribes, parents, students working this out, you know, kind of reaching one another, uh, explaining, explaining themselves, explaining their positions? Yeah, so it's been a collaborative process, but it's been pretty internal. They had, um, they hired a couple people to guide the process, consultants. Uh, one has worked for the state superintendent's office and there's another that's from like a local communication firm that are kind of leading these individual groups at the schools that are made up of students and community members. And they even brought in tribal elders for one-on-one -on -one conversations, you know, for that older generation that prefers the face-to-face. -face. So they've really worked hard to bring in all these different perspectives, but granted it's COVID. So there's not been any big open community meeting. It's just been a lot of small conversations that all came together. Right. Okay, that's that's what's going on in Marysville, and this is um, there's a there's a state law. Do I have this right, Isabella? It allows tribes to veto mascots that they think are inappropriate if if the school's enrollment boundaries is on uh, reservation land or trust yeah, lands. That's yeah. Um, okay, I'm, we're talking there with uh, Everett Daily Herald reporter Isabella Breda. We've got Crosscut reporter David Croman from Washington State Wire, the CEO and publisher there, DJ Wilson. And we're bringing you the Week in Review. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned that um, I can see my friends here, in, and so can you, because we're live streaming the show, as we always do. Go to YouTube or Facebook, and you search KUOW Public Radio. And uh, I don't know if you can see that my mask, my COVID mask, has a... Um, a little hole here for a straw so that I can be at my desk and sip and never demask. Those are the <laughs> gems that you get when you, when you watch this show happen. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Week in Review. Don't go away. This is Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. We're figuring out what went on this week and what it means with Washington State Wire publisher D.J. Wilson, Everett Daily Herald, City's reporter Isabella Breda, and Crosscut reporter David Croman. David, we've got these new leaders for Seattle about to come into office, and they're already trying to have some influence, for example, on the topic of defunding police. What's going on, David? Yeah, so uh, days after the election uh, the the chair of the budget committee in the Seattle City Council her proposed amendments to Mayor Jenny Durkin's budget, proposed budget, and um, it included more cuts to the Seattle Police Department's budget, which uh, Mayor Durkin was not pleased with. And then we quickly heard from Mayor Elect Bruce Harrell, who was also not pleased with them. Um, both of them sort of pointing to the election and basically saying, "Hey, look, like." anyone who argued in favor of quote defunding the police uh, lost well, not anyone but it was it was not a great election for for proponents of defunding the police so you know what what are you guys doing we think you, you ought to listen to the voters um, I think it's more nuanced than that uh, to, to really kind of get at what's happening you have to get into salary savings and things like that I mean Seattle PD has seen a large number of officers leave. Uh, and as a result, are not spending as much money on salary. And so what Councilmember Mosqueda is saying she's doing is 
um, basically taking that money that wasn't going to be spent. She's not mandating more cuts to staffing in the police department and spending it elsewhere um, on things like housing and homelessness. So um, I think this gives a little bit of a window into the debates that we're going to continue to have and the council is going to continue to have with mayor-elect Harrell. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's all, it kind of shows the complexity of trying to claim a mandate <laughs> in some ways, because both Mayor Durkin and Mayor Elect Harrell are sort of claiming the election as a mandate on their, for their policy of wanting to actually grow the police department. But, you know, at the same time, Councilmember Mosqueda just won her election by 20 points also. So uh, has also sort of some claim to uh, a mandate. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think if anybody thought this election was going to sort of calm things down as far as the debate over the future of police funding and budget, um, I, I think that we're seeing over the last week that it probably will not. I think this gets into the subtleties between, this, this is about messaging in some ways. It's like the mayor's budget had asked for X number, the council chair, budget chair has proposed Y number. They're different. And now they're saying, oh, you know, you're, you're making these cuts. And when in fact, the council budget chair's lower budget number still has, according to what she's sent us, uh, $6.8 million in new, new funds. It still includes 125 new officers in the council chair's budget. So in the budget chair's uh, budget. So this, this is a little bit of inside baseball where the mayor is kind of using this election as a cudgel to beat up on the council, which by the way, is a reminder that for as much as we like Kumbaya and Seattle politics, there are no better politics for a mayor than to beat up on the council. Yeah. It, it works magic all the time. And so the count, and they will always have a bigger uh, uh, bully pulpit. And so the council is always going to be pressed and they are always going to be the bad guy. Uh, but to David's point, Teresa Mosqueda just won re-election handily. She chairs the budget and uh, she's got a pretty good argument that says, hey, we're still spending $6.8 million more and still hiring 125 new officers. So you know, what's the issue? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, uh, yeah, Mayor, Mayor Durkin is taking advantage of a reality that, that DJ just alluded to, which is voters seem to blame the plot of the problems and blame the mayor less. Um, and you can kind of get into whether or not that is fair or not. Um, but polling shows nobody in city hall is popular, but, uh, the city council is especially unpopular. Uh, and, um, you know, I think I think the mayor has sort of used that to her advantage um, politically, and it, it seemed to have worked in the elections. Um, but yeah, and, and thanks to DJ for clarification of exactly what's happening. Um, the, the, the question of the, the, the gap, you know, when, when we talk about cuts, it's sort of cuts to the proposed budget, not cuts to the current budget. Yeah. And Isabella, any observations uh, from the Everett area on all this? Oh, sure. I mean, like I have likened a lot of this uh, just narrative surrounding police funding to stuff that's going on in small towns up in Snohomish County. You know, uh, you look at SPD's budget they passed for this year was over $360 million, right? Hmm. Um, so it, it takes time breaking down each individual part of that to really understand uh, what it would mean to defund or, you know, reallocate funds somewhere else. And in cities like Snohomish, which is population 10,000, um, any talk of uh, making cuts or reallocating funds to uh, they just got a community resource officer 
um, changes like that can be alarming to some people and that's going to sway, you know, how they vote. And then, you know, obviously, uh, who's ever elected is going to want to uphold those things. That's what we're seeing Harold doing in, in Seattle. Mm -hmm. It's just like a microcosm. Right. Um, another election um, issue I wanted to touch on while we're on the topic is that this week our governor named our new secretary of state. This is the person who oversees our state's elections. Kim Wyman is leaving to take a job in the Biden administration. Wyman is a Republican which is, an, I believe, the only re statewide Republican official on the West Coast. And uh, having a Republican sec Secretary of State is a tradition here in Washington. We haven't had a Democratic uh, Secretary of State, a Democrat, since the 1960s. So people were wondering, is Governor Inslee going to replace a Republican with a Republican? Is that the will of the people that our, that our elections be overseen by a Republican? Answer, no, he will not do that. The governor this week named State Senator Steve Hobbs, a centrist Democrat from up uh, near where Isabella is in Snohomish County. Steve has demonstrated through his career as a senator the ability to act independently, to not be swayed by any party. He has acted in a bipartisan basis. And I think his record should give confidence to people. He will continue to exercise that type of character that I think will help maintain credibility of our elections. Okay, so a Democrat, but Isabella, also a Democrat with no experience as an elections administrator. What can you tell us about to Senator Hobbs? Yeah, so uh, our politics reporter up here uh, listened in on and had a conversation with him on Wednesday. And basically Hobbs said, you know, which... I want to highlight he truly is a more moderate Democrat. He's butted heads with Inslee on climate and other policies, transportation. Um, but he told reporters, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I'm not really sure exactly what that means. Um, but, you know, Inslee, I think, appointed him to the position thinking that, you know, he has a career in service and is a good listener and wants to respect the people's interests. And that's what he was saying is that he really... Um, walks that middle ground between uh, the parties and and wants to to serve in the end and he'll be able to get things done and respect needs on on all ends. Uh, the reaction to the new Secretary of State, uh, a a centrist Democrat by a lot of accounts. Well, you know it it does a lot for Inslee. Um, he has as you just heard, he can make the case that he is replacing a moderate with a moderate. Um, I don't think he was ever going to replace her with a Republican. Um, Why not? Or, or a Republican or an independent? Why not? Because he's a Democrat, <laughs> uh, because he's the Democratic governor of Washington state. Um, but isn't it, and, we, we talked about this a bit last week, but I'm curious your take, isn't it, isn't, hasn't it been useful for Governor Inslee uh, to have a Republican defending our vote by mail and our election system in Washington? I, th I think, yeah, I mean, I think I think it, there's a reason why Kim Wyman won so easily. And I think a lot of I mean, Washington is a Democratic state, but I do think a lot of Democrats appreciated having, you know, somebody who is really a, a very centrist, uh, moderate Republican disputing things that Donald Trump was saying about vote by mail. I think that went a long way in her favor. Um, and I have. I don't have a lot of doubt that if she had run again, she would be elected again. But I'm also skeptical that people were voting for her specifically because she's a Republican. I think people liked her. Um, 
but and I'm saying so, from the governor's point of view, is it was it, is it not right. has it not been useful? To, you said that he's not going to pick a Republican. I'm saying why not? Again, because I think I think he's a Democrat, and Democrats have tried and failed to win that seat for a long time, and now is a good chance to take it. But also, I think it does a few things. Steve Hobbs, in particular, he can get up on stage and say, "This is about as moderate of a Democrat as you can get." You know, I'm not replacing Kim Wyman with some uber lefty elected official. And also, um, oh, by the way, it gets somebody who has been kind of a thorn in his side out of his way to do things like the clean fuel standard, which uh, Senator Hobbs was opposed to Hmm. priority of of Governor Inslee's. So if somebody like, say, uh, Seattle Senator Rebecca Saldana takes over that seat, um, suddenly his his prospects of, you know, the, the to lead the transportation committee, suddenly his prospects of ticking off some of his climate agenda get a lot better. Uh-huh. DJ, any thoughts? You know, I think Steve, uh, Senator Hobbs is a, is a really timely pick. Um, you know, the job of the Secretary of State vis-a-vis elections is not really about counting ballots. It's about supporting the county auditors, mm-hmm. 39 county auditors and directors of elections that have to do that work. And under Secretary of State Wyman's leadership, they've put a lot of effort into technology because Washington State was found to have been one of the states targeted by Russia for election interfering, particularly in the voter uh, roles. And, you know, Steve, Senator Hobbs is, uh, uh, he was the Western Washington commander for the National Guard during part of the COVID response. He's managed upward of 750 National Guardsmen and, and service uh, members. Uh, so he's he's not a lightweight on the administrative space, and he's got national security cred that most folks, frankly, in the legislature uh, can't touch. So he's going to take an approach that is different, um, and I think he's going to have one heck of a race in 2022, which should be a banner year for Republicans. Um, if he wins that 2022 race, he's probably Secretary of State for a long, long time. A banner uh, and, year for Republicans. It's like it's going to be a uh, a bloodshed for Democrats, uh, whether Democrats want to admit it uh, or not. Uh, and he may be one of them. But uh, I think he's probably one of the best political choices one can make. And frankly, he's a person of color. His mom's Japanese. And that was really important to legislators in the Democratic caucuses that the governor appoints somebody who could representative could be representative of a, of a perspective that wasn't a traditional white male perspective. And, and so it, politically, I think it's smart. And we'll see how it turns out in the polls. Yeah. Okay. Um, One just quick note before we leave elections, we're going to take a quick break. But the state Supreme Court this week said that Governor Inslee overstepped his authority when he repeatedly cut one sentence out of the transportation budget. Uh, The legislature sued over that. And uh, and this court says that the governor can't do that. How big a deal? Is that important? Why is it important? I don't know that it's important to... um, this gets into things like line item vetoes versus section vetoes and how you can embed legislation to protect it from vetoes, all inside baseball stuff. Uh, I don't know that it's important. Um, okay. Uh, well, that's all I need uh, to know. It's not important. Yeah. Unless you're really into sort of the gamesmanship of uh, lawmaking. Well, it's just that if the governor, you know, giving the governor more versus less power to, to veto how he or she wants is, uh, I don't know. I know this one line was about preventing the transportation department from considering the vehicle fuel type 
when it comes to grants for transit services, and there was a fight over that. Anyway, the governor doesn't have quite as much, quite as specific a veto power as exactly. maybe some thought. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and come uh, right back, and we're going to uh, talk about an amazing story that involves tree DNA and burning wasps' nests, and uh, I didn't know about this stuff. And also, uh, a lot of us know about this new tax, a controversial new tax that some people are trying to get out of. We're going to wrap those up for you and give you something to smile about when we return on Week in Review. This is Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, your host, along with your journalists today, Crosscut reporter David Croman, Everett Daily Herald City's reporter Isabella Breda, Washington State Wire publisher and CEO D.J. Wilson. Did you guys see the New York Times story this week about the Olympic National Forest tree poachers? Uh, it was you, crazy. I loved it. Right. You cannot log in the Olympic National Forest, uh, at least in this part of it, if at all, and a group of poachers were going in at night cutting down big leaf maples, which big leaf maple yields this beautiful hardwood that is perfect for guitars and violins. And the poachers were selling the wood to a lumber mill in Tumwater. And so one night they're cutting away and they come to a wasp's nest, which they don't like. So they sprayed it with insecticide and something, some accelerant, probably gasoline, set fire to it, to the wasp nest. It grew out of control and took off uh, and, and and the poachers took off running, and the fire ended up burning 3,000-plus acres. And so this case was solved about who done it, who done the burning, who done the cutting, and it's because researchers built a database of Olympic National Forest big-leaf maples and the DNA of the wood that these poachers sold to that tum, uh, Tumwater mill matched the DNA of the trees that were illegally cut from this area. So, you know, we've got human DNA databases, but we're just one species. To catch poachers with DNA, uh, tree poachers, you've got to have a database for every single species of tree. So because the big leaf maple is such a valuable wood tree, that's one of the first species they built out, and it's the first time that this DNA has been used in a federal criminal trial. And this week, the ringleader of this poaching group just got 20 months in federal prison. Any reaction to that? I think when, when my you know crazy uncle, actually metaphorically crazy uncle, uh, when a crazy uncle says, why is the federal government giving all this money away for you know building a library of tree DNA? That's crazy. Mm. We can say because of justice, uncle, justice. <laughs> yeah. Isabella, you're saying? Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's actually pretty rad and I think it's going to be useful in the future. I remember um, a few years ago before this even happened, there was like this streak of uh, thefts of maple trees in the national park and, uh, you know, some small agencies like Mason County Sheriff, Grace Harbor, um, were trying to figure out, you know, who's taking it. And I think this will be helpful because apparently it's a problem. And they were saying saying the odds of this being a coincidence that they got the two wrong trees was like one to the 36th power or something like it was like one with 36 zeros after it. Like yeah. there's just yeah. the certainty that they have the right tree is like off the charts. 
And there was a name for that. There's a name for one with 36 zeros, and I can't remember it right now, but uh, that's how unlikely it, it would be that this is not the right poaching group. But, but, the guy, but the guy didn't get any jail time for burning down the forest because, like, the witnesses didn't, like, literally see him actually light this thing on fire. So he's only getting busted for the poaching, not for the arson. Yep, he was only wasp nest fire adjacent as far as they could prove. It was night. It was nighttime, and and the, the fellow poachers said, "I can't say for sure." So yeah, the poaching, the burning, three thousand three hundred acres. I uh, forget how much you know how much money was spent on putting it out, but yeah, tree DNA, interesting. I wouldn't be surprised if Washington. I don't know this, but if this is a New York Times story that the Seattle Times reprinted, but I wouldn't be surprised if. That'd be a good story for us, for KOW, how, how Washington state researchers are involved in building tree species databases, because I'm pretty sure that's happening here. They've, they've, they've got maple uh, uh, species databases from, from Mexico to, to Vancouver. Uh, anyway, fascinating stuff. You can find that in the New York Times, and it's on the Seattle Times website, too. We are uh, with you talking about the, the, the week in review in, in Washington State and western Washington. This, this next story is about a statewide debate. Our, you, you've probably heard about our newest tax. Starting in January, you're going to have money deducted from your paycheck to pay for a new long-term health care program. Unless you're able to opt out, and opting out is not easy. And this week, DJ, opponents of this new tax filed a lawsuit in federal court to stop it. Would you catch us up? Sure. Uh, so as preface, uh, the world in the United States, Washington State, has a great long-term care uh, system if you are super rich or super poor. And if you are somewhere in between, you are way out of luck. And it turns out, like death and taxes, getting old is, all, is usually <laughs> inevitable. Uh, and so we're all, many of us are going to need a long-term benefit, or we're going to need some help, or we're going to know people who need some help, and we're going to be wholly ill-prepared. Long-term care insurance is not usually an effective um, uh, benefit for anybody, uh, rarely. And, and so what people end up doing is they will either win the lottery, which doesn't usually happen, or they spend down all of their assets and make themselves poor so they can get a Medicaid benefit for long-term care coverage, which usually includes somebody coming to your home, uh, an in-home long-term care worker to support you. And so Representative Lori Jenkins, now speaker, before she became speaker, tried to come up with a, a, a policy mechanism to fill that gap between super rich and super poor. And so she spent two sessions working really doggedly and quietly, uh, but actively to build a consensus around this, where you, you know, as part of a payroll tax, you would pay into a system and then in the future, you would be able to have some benefits. Yes, uh, there are questions about how people will access those benefits and whether they'll be enough and all that stuff. We do have a history in Washington or in the United States when it comes to healthcare of Paying, not wanting to pay much and expecting amazing things and filling that gap is hard. Uh, and this, there's a clear situation here where we're not paying too much, but more than before. Uh, uh, and uh, it's not going to go very far. Uh, we're still going to be old and have needs of someone to help us. But this is a, a middle ground or not a middle ground, maybe a first step to try to fill some of that gap so that you don't have to spend yourself down immediately to poverty in order to have some uh, benefit. 
DJ, so do you this, have a sense of how much money this is for, for the average worker? When you, uh, when you collect the benefit, it's about $36,500. And um, it's about, I think it's 0.58% uh, payroll tax on your income. Um, so Half a percent a, of your paycheck. Correct. Uh, and, you know, we already have like a 7.5% payroll tax for federal uh uh, federal uh, programs like Social Security, so it's not nothing. But um, you know, thirty-six thousand dollars to pay a family member to take time off from work to come, make sure you're safe, or to pay uh, a friend to come over, or or a long-term care worker to come help you is not nothing. Um, and frankly, we have we don't talk about this very much in our society, and but we don't uh, take great care of our seniors. Uh, and we don't talk about them and we don't talk about the social isolation and the problems there. And so this is one step to help fill that gap. The other thing I'd say is because of the uh, deadline and the way an exemption is created, and if you want to be, if you want to opt out from this tax, you have to have a long-term care uh, product in place. All of a sudden people are getting emails uh, from long-term care insurance providers and HR leaders are having to communicate to all of their employees, you should be aware of this change in coverage and benefits. And all of a sudden, it's like people are having these conversations, like, I don't even know what this is, what this is about. But this has actually been in process and progress for about, I think, four years. So it's not new to the Olympia crowd, but it's certainly new when you get the email from your HR director that you got to have a plan for your long-term care insurance. And nobody thinks about that. Mm-hmm. Isabella, any uh questions, comments, observations on, on all of this, this statewide uh, payroll tax? Yeah, I mean, I would fall into the crowd of not really considering that type of benefit for the future because I'm thinking I'm still young and I'm not worried about that yet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thinking of who's applying for those exemptions, there's a lot of young people and I, um, I'm pretty sure they crashed the website where you could apply for the exemptions in the first day of it. So I think that says a lot about how people are feeling. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know what the, you know, I, I, I have no idea sort of the legal soundness of the argument, but my understanding of the lawsuit um, against this, my understanding is the main complaints are from people who are, are basically are going to retire soon or they're, they're paying into it now, but just don't feel like they're going to see the benefits or people who live in Oregon or maybe Idaho and come over to Washington to work they'll have to pay the tax and then would not receive the benefit later or people who, you know, snowbirds or whatever, who might go off to Arizona to retire and wouldn't, and would be paying into this, but wouldn't see the benefit. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know how sound of legal arguments those are. Um, it seems like it's maybe on the list of things for Democrats about like they have a couple pieces of legislation that they've passed that seems like now they'll have to maybe make some tweaks to in the next legislative session. So, uh, it'll be interesting to kind of see the policy responses to some of these legal complaints. DJ, what are the odds that this tax is upheld versus squashed in the courts? Well, uh, the dumbest people are folks who try to predict what a court system will do. Uh, and so I will <laughs> no respectfully decline to protect. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I will, I'll decline to have a, a prediction on the courts, but I will predict on the legislative section uh, with uh, legislative world, which is only, you know, requires a minor amount of IQ uh, in addition. Anyway, uh, when the Speaker of the House sees this as a dogged issue that she cares about, 
that means it's unlikely to go away. When the largest union in one of the most unionized states in the country is the long-term care uh, workers union, it means this issue is likely to go away. And when baby boomers, respectfully as a Gen Xer, when baby boomers continue to want to have long-term care benefits but don't wanna to have to pay for them, it means it's gonna be a budget issue as our Medicaid rolls continue to swell as people get older. So right now, uh, Medicare, which doesn't have a long-term care benefit, um, you as a, once you get on Medicare at age 65, you get three times the amount of benefits that you pay into over the course of your whole life. So you get the Medicaid benefit uh, when, you, when you need long-term care. And you know because of demographics, because of politics, because of budget economics, I just don't think this issue is going away regardless of what the courts do. Well, I just remember this is not something I had to worry about back when I was celebrating Armistice Day in 1918. <laughs> uh, okay, we're, we're going to get to uh, anything that, that was worth smiling about uh, this week. I, I just want to check in before we do that with, uh, with you, DJ, when you said it's banner year for Republicans in 2022. You were predicting that in Washington state, like, do you think that there's going to be such a red wave that Washington state is going to, that, that the legislature is going to flip Republican or what, what, what are you saying here? Uh, uh, no offense on your, I'm not insulting your IQ by asking you more about that prediction. No, no, that, in fact, that prediction I put on tape, I think six months ago or nine months ago on one of your shows uh-huh. uh, and got overlooked, but I'm glad you brought it up. It was so long ago. Uh, there are a couple of key pieces that put the Washington state legislature in play in a very unique way. One is of course, uh, local and state politics are often influenced by national media and the national uh, conversation has a Democrat in, in of course the uh, White House and Democratic control of Congress. There have been only three times since 1932 when at the federal level, the party in the White House has won seats. Every other time since 1932 in the midterm election, they've yeah. been beat up. Yep. So the national error war is in the Republicans' favor. Number two, we're redistricting all of our legislative seats in, uh, in the state. And the way we do that, it's still maps are still getting finalized, but the way we do that requires a map that provides, quote, no partisan advantage to, and that's in our constitution and statute, to either party. So it's a map that is more 50-50 than any map we've had in the last 10 years because Mm -hmm. people move into Seattle and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then the third is uh, uh, you are going to, even in Washington state, when you have uh, the national air war, and you've got this national advantage or this uh, uh, map getting redrawn. Uh, you, there is a little bit of a reaction uh, to the local politics and home, things like homelessness and the conversation uh, at the Seattle City Council, and that will permeate into the battlegrounds, which are the suburbs of Seattle. Okay, we're not really worried about the downtown Seattle. We're not worried about yeah. Chihuila. We're worried about what people in Issaquah or Sammamish or Burien think. Okay, more to come on that. Um, let's let's wrap up the show here. We can review uh, as far as something to smile about. I don't know if you heard that a Washington stater went to space this week. Thirty-four-year-old Navy lieutenant commander and astronaut in Richland, Washington, native Kayla Barron was on the latest SpaceX flight to the International Space Station. Naturally, she brought along a stuffed peacock named Fowl. That's German for peacock, and. 
and um, we chose SOW to be our zero-G indicator because Raj and I are both uh, from the class called the Turtles, um, and we're excited to represent our class in space. Um, and Tom is a peacock. Tom's our veteran crew member, and the rest of us are rookies, so we've been getting our space legs and doing pretty well so far. The home menagerie will be at the International Space Station until April, and Kayla Barron is in line possibly to be the first woman on the moon. We'll see. She's also the 601st person to reach outer space in 60 years. Uh, Last thing, I would think these private space flights must be concerning to Whidbey Island's Mark Sargent, who is a leader of the Flat Earth Movement. And you've got, it just keeps spreading outside of NASA. More and more people are claiming that, that the Earth is a ball and I'm trying to I'm trying to find Mark Sargent, do my own interview. Uh, I'm fascinated with what what makes that dude tick. Anything else to uh, smile about this week before we go? Well, I would just say uh, I don't know. It's something to smile about, but it's not going to get much worse than it is now. It almost only goes up from this weather and this darkness. We still got to get to December 21st, but these are the dog days of the Seattle weather calendar. It almost only gets better from here. I love this rain. I feel like when you when you clean your shower head and finally you get water pressure again, it's such a fantastic feeling. So, but no offense to the people dealing with the flooding. Uh, anything else, Isabella, David? Any anything that we should smile about? Um, well, this isn't local, but since we talked about a peacock going to space, mm-hmm. uh, there was a duck that ran in the New York City Marathon named Wrinkles. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cute. <laughs> Apparently, it was an emotional support animal. Oh, really? And the mm-hmm. duck and the duck ran the marathon. Ran and quacked. Now I feel worse about my my conditioning, David. <laughs> um, well, this is my last. This will be my last uh, time on the show as a crosscut reporter. Right. I'm switching over. I'm switching over to the Seattle Times. So yeah. That's, that's what's making. Well, it's a bit a little bittersweet. I feel sad about leaving crosscut, and but also happy to be joining the Seattle Times. So that's. And then I'm going to take a few weeks off here in a second. So that yeah. also is making me happy. Yeah, I imagine. Transportation reporter at the Seattle Times. That's right, right? yeah. Okay, well, we'll talk. Um, come back on the show. That's uh, We've got David Croman there, almost formerly Crosscut reporter, about to head to the Seattle Times. We've got Washington State Wire CEO and publisher DJ Wilson and Everett Daily Herald Cities reporter Isabella Breda. And it was a joy to have you all on here to help us figure out what happened this week. It was kind of a weird week, weather-wise, and the holiday in the middle, and school closures and all that. So thank, thank you to all of you for uh, helping us sort it out. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Bill. And thanks for hosting the show. Your uh, service, you are an icon and an important uh, piece of our community. I appreciate it. <laughs> How kind of you. Thank you, DJ. Is that because I uh, forced you to uh, pre- predict things in a way that questioned <laughs> your, your wisdom? Uh, that's I DJ. think we... Yeah. We don't give people uh, enough credit, so I just want to make sure you get a little. Thank you. Much love to you. And also much love to uh, Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu, who enable us to get the show on uh, YouTube and Facebook, as we do. Social media and live streaming help there. And the show's produced by Alec Cowan and Sarah Leibovitz. And uh, I'm grateful to you. Thank you for listening. Let's do it again next week.